Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best Mission Impossible film. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcasts should have a theme song. Podcasts should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Mr. Lublin, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to decide which of the Mission Impossible films ranks number one. As always, you may assemble your team as required, and this message will self-destruct in five seconds. Okay. Oh, jeez. Five seconds. All right, Mission Impossible 2, that was a fun podcast. Nice to see you guys. Wait, no! Hey, Matt? Matthew? Oh, sorry. James? Ignacio Arnold, <laughs> you and Frank get, Walsh. Are you, are you using all of them? Yeah, he yeah. got them all. Even the I ones that I told anybody about. Yeah, I know all the <laughs> secret names. This is this is the IMF. This is what we do. Uh, you and Freddie Wong, of course, uh, from Story Break, our fellow Maximum Fun podcaster, joining us. What is up, Max Fun? Yeah. Hello. Hello, crossover. It all happened yeah, because be of Twitter. All because uh, of Twitter. This is yeah. a crazy story for our for us being on here. Can, can I tell it? Can I tell why Please, we're here? Please, tell the meat cute. Do it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know why we're on here, so this is good. So, <laughs> I to hear this. Matt and I have a reputation amongst our friends of being loud arguers, and we see argumentation and rhetoric as the ancient Romans did, as a sport, <laughs> as a way to show one's character. And we don't ever take it personally, but it is strong enough that we've gotten in college, we would do this. We would get into an argument. One of the more famous ones was, is cheesecake a pie or a cake? Mm. It was so powerful that we had friends come up to us afterwards and be like, are you guys still okay? Are you guys still friends? Like they thought that we were like really actually mad at each other. But for us, we know that in the safe space of argumentation and debate, is uh, the crucible of friendship can be formed. <laughs> Amen. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we did an experimental thing for another podcast that we do called Dungeons and Daddies, where we call we made a little mini podcast called Debate Me Coward. And the point was to try and give these give our fans sort of the idea of what this argumentation is like and what will our other co-host on Story Break has to go through being a friend with us on a week by week basis. And he doesn't like argument, ar- arguing. It's like the poor guys are stuck in between the two of us yelling at each other all the time. <laughs> so we had people come up to us on, on the Twitter and they were like, have you guys, are you familiar with We Got This? Because this is like kind of their steez and you guys would be great on it. So just out of nowhere on Twitter, I was like, all right, let's go. We would love to be on. And then it was like, oh yeah, also another Maximum podcast. Oh, perfect. And then some Zoom meeting invites got sent and here we are. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It, that whole thing does, though, feel like a warning that you're yeah, like, guys, bit. there's going to be blood. <laughs> I think what's good and about if it's this John one... Woo, there's going to be slow mo blood. <laughs> be a lot of blood. <laughs> We're passionate people, and we, we got a lot of passion <laughs> for this series. And we hear that you folks are passionate people as well. And you know what? It's hard to find a good group of like minded, passionate people to hash out the hard topics. Exactly. That's right. We find the objective answers to the subjective questions. 
Nowhere else on the internet will you find four men passionate about movies. I know, right? <laughs> Talking about Never. movies. Never. I, I, Podcast. I find it, but here we are. You know what? That's a good point. For our listeners, movies are uh, – they have these places called theaters. You can go see them. They put the picture <laughs> up on the screen. They did. I, people aren't talking about it. Not anywhere. Uh, and by the way, just to talk about the heated debate and rhetoric, Mark and I once reached an impasse at an episode. And we edited out the part where it was like, well, neither of us are budging. This is going to be a five-hour episode. And yeah. it got to the point where we yeah. we ended an episode and then his girlfriend at the time started text – like trash-talking me over text afterwards because <laughs> oh. she disagreed. Then we uh, argued about it again perfect. and eventually went on Judge John Hodgman to have him settle it. Oh, no. Who won? Yeah. I did. This- Oh. Did. Am I pointing in the correct direction for how? You're pointing at Freddie no, on my screen. Yeah, hey, congratulations, <laughs> Freddie. <laughs> Good job, Freddie. We're on Go Zoom on. right now. So this is one of the rare uh, occasions where we do get to see everyone that is on the show today. Oh, yeah, which is nice. Because normally when I do a podcast, I avert my eyes. I'm just like, don't look at me right now. It's just me and my... You're the Sia of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The hair all the way down. Yeah, flying right down in your horse, face. Like a horse. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Sia. We are here to talk about the Mission Impossible films. Who asked this one, Hal? This is Kristen Kelly, who this is seems Kristen to know Kelly. you. I, we get a lot of messages from Kristen Kelly just to give you guys some background. That's like, <laughs> ask Mark about the time he was like, he was naked at Times Square and it was New Year's Eve. And I'll ask Mark and he'll be like, yeah, that happened. I don't like, <laughs> that's a story. Yeah. She, <laughs> she knows a lot about you. She may be behind you right now. Is she standing behind me? Mm hmm. Yeah. Kristen Kelly, are you behind me right now? Yeah. Uh, you, you guys, wait a minute. We're on Zoom right now doing this. None of you could warn me if someone is, if anybody is creeping up behind any of the three of you, I'll warn you. But it's just so you know. know. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's good to know. Uh, yeah. yeah. I can't be believe you wouldn't do that for me, Hal. This might be no, all yeah. a big fake background behind me. You never know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if so, if I see two people just wheeling it away Come out on, of the that frame. Is good, that, you know what? I'm okay. That is a good visual gimmick that I haven't seen yet, which is the backgrounds there. And then you green screen, you just literally have the clone of yourself like wheeling it away. <laughs> Zoom background jokes happened for, it was like 30 hot internet seconds and it was yeah. like everyone's like we got it it's dumb if i was ready what i would do is my zoom background would just be a plate of my room clean <laughs> like literally the same literally like not like a fancy wow. not like a you're gonna, you're gonna do me like that huh well look you oh. just i mean i appreciate that you just threw the blanket over it you yeah. know who didn't do that charlie pooth in that huge mega concert <laughs> Did you guys watch that big mega concert that was like no. all, the, all the stars from home? It was like a whole day long thing and mm-hmm. they raised a ton of money, but Charlie Puth was one of them. And dude did not make his bed. Okay. Was singing on, I, I can't tell if that is a super lazy move or if that is the most baller move most you can do. Powerful move. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. like, Oh, I'm going to be on like it was on every channel. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not going to make my bed. And I could change. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome, oh, welcome to my room. This is who I am. I think it was a power move because he ended it by staring directly into his camera for 45 seconds while urinating. <laughs> which that's like, that's, that's your marking territory at that point. You can hear it. It was weird. Oh, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was so right. loud. Let's talk about Mission Impossible movies. Yes. I propose an idea to you for a way to break this down. All right. Because going movie by movie, it might get repetitious because these movies 
having recently watched them in the last few days, they all have so many things in common. Yeah. And there are more categories we could create, but I've broken them down into a bunch of categories. So I propose, as we often do on this show, is we go with each of the categories, find a winner in each of those categories, and then our ultimate victor will start to emerge. Mm, okay. okay, so I see that you have a category on year. Personally, 2011 was a really good year for me. Um, look. <laughs> Ghost Protocol, I think, wins that one. <laughs> I don't know about any of you guys. I mean, it was a good year. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah, Did we figure it out already? Are we done? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. 2011. It's Ghost Protocol. I have, it was I a, have good a 2015 year. Macquarie in the cellar that I'm just waiting <laughs> to pop open. <laughs> All right. All right. So if I may, just to get us a general, uh, I think one good one to start with, mm-hmm. the director's. Yeah, I think this is a this is a good this is a good place to start. We've got uh, the original Mission Impossible directed by Brian De Palma, Mission Impossible Two directed by John Woo, Mission Impossible Three directed by J.J. Abrams, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol directed by Brad Bird, and the last two Rogue Nation and Fallout directed by Christopher McQuarrie. Thoughts off the bat? Can I just point out that when the original Mission Impossible film came out in was it ninety five ninety six. 96. That was at a time when a lot of television from the 60s and 70s was being adapted into yeah. pictures. Mm-hmm. Brady Bunch uh, was made around them. Adam's Family had already had a sequel at that point. And De Palma seemed like the right guy to direct it because his movies are paranoia based. Mm-hmm. So this uh-huh. idea of conspiracy theory and government uh, stuff, I just I, that movie is a bogged down mess. It's a wild movie. I'll say of all the movies, that's the one that would not be made today like whatever you want to say about woos like john mm-hmm. woos movie is definitely still in the vein of the fast and the furious like the kind mm-hmm. of over-the-top pulpy action whereas brian de palma like when was the last time you've seen a big blockbuster movie with that much weird auteur independent filmmaking like it's a bonkers movie going back yeah. and rewatching it well he was the last of the four film school buddies to do a giant blockbuster like this <laughs> So, you know, you had Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg, and De Palma, and he was the last of that class yeah. that got to ha- put his stamp on a thing. I actually really liked it. Yeah, in a weird oh. way, it's it ends up being the most unique out of all mm-hmm. of them. Because I think when you look back at them, and I, I think it's especially true of the Ghost Protocol and onwards from 2011 on, mm-hmm. they have the Born Identity problem, which where it's like, which one is that? Is that the one where he climbs the thing, or is that the one where he's on the <laughs> right? Or which is it? Like they start to blend a little bit, but like oh, yeah. you cannot mistake both Tom Cruise's hair in Mission Impossible 2 and also De Palma's direction in this Mission Impossible 1. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yep. He does a great job with it. And what he also does is set up all of the things that are yeah. coming. You know what I mean? Like there are so many things that become tropes through these movies and we'll get to those. But he, you know, he's George Washington. He's the president that set the precedent for all of the stuff to come. Oh, talk about, by the way, Ving Rhames, like just dunking from half court. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, Luther. I get it. I, I get it. Tom Cruise is going to be Ethan Hunt, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But like, it's been it's been a Rames party. For, what, <laughs> yeah, they can't get rid of him. They can't oh. get rid of him. It's been 24 yeah. years of yeah. Rames. Yeah. He and there was, the there was one movie that he wasn't in until one cameo at the end. And it was like, boo, where was he the whole time? <laughs> like, yeah. Mm, that is that is like that's got to go down with like I, I'm reminded by 
uh, who was it? I have to look this up. Um, who, there was a, there was a, the other rapper who was going, it was not Ludacris. It was going to be the guy in Fast and Furious. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Ludacris is in it, right? Yeah. So Ludacris. Ludacris was, yeah. was it Busta Rhymes? Yes. Busta Rhymes was asked originally and I believe he turned it down and it was like, oh, uh, yeah, bro. <laughs> right? bad, bad decision. Ludicrous. Ludicrous. Oof. That's, that's, uh, that's like, that's like live on that. Let's live on royalties forever money. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's it. That's you're done. Um, let me say amongst the directors really quick. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt and I are probably the biggest Woo fans. I would say off the top right away, Woo and Abrams, I think are at the bottom of this list in terms of the right time and the right material for the director. I think Abrams specifically. I'm trying to take the knife out of my heart when I just heard <laughs> Freddie say woo. It's at the bottom of this list. Well, no, no, no. Because I would say this. Because I would say that, like, for example, like, this is, again, this is right around the era of the greatest woo stuff, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is face-off. face-off had already come yeah, out. It's, yeah. it's a lesser face-off for sure in terms of, tough. like, woo. It's tough to compare that when you look at it's like It's like it's the Mona Lisa right next to some, like, drawing of an ornithopter. <laughs> you know, right? It's Leonardo still. But one was a sketch, and the other one is yeah. hanging in the loop. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Abrams and Matt and I were talking about this earlier. When you watch that one, it's three especially, watching it mm-hmm. now, when you look at the direction, it's so, the action especially is shot so tight and it feels like you're watching TV because this is Abrams mm-hmm. in his transitional time period coming mm-hmm. from the world of alias, coming from the world of television and becoming and developing into, you know, this big cinematic. Yeah. But I think he's definitely still in the middle of a transition. But I loved that. Uh, JJ Abrams was one of my favorite directors of these because to me, he felt like an outlier in it mm-hmm. because, and probably because he had come from television and everything's close and everything is like, uh, John Woo did insane. Like there's not much story or character. It's, it's a music oh, we'll video fight we'll fight with 15 that, minutes. <laughs> but, but what JJ Abrams did that I thought was cool and sort of outside of the series is that everything was character based. It was all like, you really, really care about the people and like his tech in that all of the tech that he chooses, or I don't know how much of this was the screenplay and how much of this Mm -hmm. was the, like a general idea for the thing. Um, But like, there's not some sort of projector or 3d mapping on a table. He gets out a Sharpie and draws on the window the outline uh, you know what I mean? It was just a, yeah. the climax of the movie is CPR. Like it, mm-hmm. I loved how Smaller organic scale. this movie was. Yeah. So the, it, felt, it felt reactionary. I think frankly to, yes, like it was a reaction to John Woo's <laughs> insanity. John Woo's, well, uh, it, it, the only thing it carries over from the first two films is Ethan Hunt and Luther. The, the really yeah. the only yeah. things that he, everything else you could assume that, that he, that Ethan Hunt is this legendary IMF agent who's now behind a mm-hmm. desk that he's not really doing that work anymore. Mm-hmm. You didn't need the first two films. They could just be like five minutes of, of that yeah. story. Its job is to reset what the entire franchise is. And then mm-hmm. Mad Robot, I think, produced everything after that. So he had some hand in it somewhere and set the table for the following three films, mm-hmm. which well, I, well, yeah, I definitely feel like the first, cause we can get into like for me, honestly, like probably my favorite. My personal favorite movies are my two, but that's not necessarily sure. the best. I think probably my vote for best, or at least the director's best for it, is Brad Bird. But I think what's interesting is the first three movies, each of the directors brings something that becomes necessary for the rest of the series. And mm-hmm. Ghost Protocol feels like the kind of the 
the no. fruition of everything. Cause like, so the first one sets up, right. It's mission impossible. Like right. You got Cruise, you got the kind of the paranoia, you got the masks, you got all that stuff. Right. And John Woo's definitely the one who brings in the, okay, we're going to put a knife next to his eye. Tom Cruise is going right. to climb a rock. But he down. also, he also did bring in some like, he, yeah, he brought in martial arts and rock climbing. Which yeah. Weirdly. I mean, they play in huge for the rest of the series. Yeah. And then JJ Abrams from, you know, uh, Alias and, and Lost and everything. By the way. And, the and, the motorcycle. and the motorcycles, yeah. Oh, but he definitely sure, brings, yeah. like, this is going to be, like, Bond, but even bigger kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what John Woo brings. And then Abrams comes in and is like, okay, we're bringing in his family, and I'm going to make the team feel tighter and actually more like a TV show. Like, it's going to be fun. Like, you're going to care about the team. And and, yeah. him. and then when you get to Ghost Protocol, all those things come together. It's like, okay, we're big spy stuff again. We're doing the biggest stunts ever. And we're going to bring in Jeremy Renner and, you know, story about his wife. And we're going to kind of bring in all the stuff that that uh, um, J.J. brought to it, too. So it does feel like those first three yeah. movies are kind of figuring it out. And then Ghost Protocol's like, all right, here's big franchise Mission Impossible now. Yeah. And Bird found some funny, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. He brings the humor into the cartoon. And I think, by the way, in terms of the him coming from the animation background gives those movies and the action sequences there such Mm -hmm. a dynamic precision that you yeah. rarely get in live action. Like it looks like it the whole thing was storyboarded. Yeah, yes. and it's and it's beautiful. And it's yeah, so because yeah. whereas like I would say like Wu's action becomes it's an impressionistic painting, right? It's yeah. flashes of <laughs> slow motion, it's you know, flame, it's all this sort of stuff kind of blowing past camera and it's, it's impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bird is has this sort of precision, which you rarely get to see in live action. And it's always the case when these animation guys transition to live action. And a lot of the times, a lot of the reason why I think a lot of them, when you talk to them, you see or read their interviews, they don't really like live action because they frankly don't have as much control as they do right. compared to animation. It's always a little bit of a learning process for them. And I think Bird has this sort of like chef-like ability to pull in all the stuff from the previous ones and cohese them together and sort of bring them in a way that then sets the tone for McQuarrie to kind of go from afterwards. And I love McQuarrie as a director, but mm-hmm. I would also argue that, frankly, from 2015 on, McQuarrie's involvement with the, with these movies, you might as well put a slash Tom Cruise in there as well because of that yeah. so much Tom Cruise is also saying, hey, I want to do X, Y, and Z. When you listen to... We're going to space now, yeah, right? It's like the yeah. next one. He's like, we're going do, to space. Uh, I want to hang off of the uh, Airbus, right? Like, that's Tom Cruise making that call as producer, actor, extraordinaire. Right. And, and, and kind of calling the shot in that way. So, you know, and I think McCory is great at being able to roll with those punches, but he's rolling with Tom Cruise at that point, whereas Bird almost is like the last one of them to really right. kind of be able to set that. What up. a great list of directors, by the way. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like yeah. That, it's like it's, I'm fans of all of them, and they all bring something to it, and I think that's definitely the high point of the series, which makes me, again, I love McQuarrie, but it does, there's something I liked about Tom Cruise's original, like, idea for the series of, like, a new director coming in and giving it its style. Mm-hmm. Like, you're definitely going to lose that now, because McQuarrie did two, and he's going to do, like, the next two, yeah. which mm-hmm. is fine, but there's something like, you know, I kind of wish that you would have, like, you know, whatever Christopher Nolan do one and whatever, like everybody brings their own style to it, but you know, it is what it is. Obviously he found his partner. It's interesting because it's started out and it started going in the direction of being more James Bond where they do have, they now, Mm -hmm. especially different directors coming in. Yeah. Mendes did his run. So everything has a unique feel to it. And they sort of ditched that at three and say, we're going to make this a long story. So it definitely feels more episodic, especially watching the back to back, which is something Mark pointed out to me. But I also think as a series, mm-hmm. and I, I forget that I watched all of them in the theater. I enjoyed all of them, but yeah, their, their batting average is extraordinarily high. I like yeah. four of yeah. them a lot. 
the yeah. two I don't like as much, I still think are pretty good. Yeah. They're still yeah. fun. It's still it's still great use of John Woo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I would and I would say also one of the things that I appreciate with Mission Impossible over that is that like even the current slate of Bond movies, if you give it to if you had just some rando right layperson watch them, they would be hard pressed to be like, oh, this is this director's style at the end of watching. Right? It's hard to right. pull Mendes' mm-hmm. style out from the Bond aesthetic, whereas right. Mission Impossible is wears the director's influence on its sleeve in a way that is very. It feels very unique because I think as time has gone on, as more money gets thrown into these blockbusters, stuff just amalgamates, right? Like at a certain mm-hmm. point, children's animation, it's like, yeah, there's flair and there's great directors there. But for the average layperson, it all is a certain level of mm-hmm, polish mm-hmm, at a certain mm-hmm. point, you know? And that's kind of what I always liked about that sort of initial, that, that run that just as a series mission possible because you were able to get this flavor that just frankly does not exist in any large scale action franchise. Anymore. Not just large scale, the largest scale. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like a, it's like having a workshop theater, but with a billion dollar budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So they get to do a lot of fun stuff. Um, so what do we think coming out of this first category? You kind of sold me on Brad Bird. Yeah, if I was gonna be like, I think it's kind of like, what's your taste? Like to me personally, I think, I think the version that Brad Bird does mm. is my favorite tone of Mission Impossible. Like, I think he's not obviously as like he's not comedic per se, but like I like that everything's breaking. I like that the tools sure. don't work. I like the kind of the the and frankly, just the whole Dubai sequence to me is just the best directed sequence of all. It's pretty incredible. It, like that that forty five minutes of just nonstop intercutting and the stunts. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of the biggest stunts he does, but there's just as much direction with Simon Pegg and the humor going on in the small mm-hmm. room as like he's outside on the building. Like I like the movie's a little long to me, and like the back half isn't as good as like the front half. Like for me, like you can't beat the Dubai sequence. But man, I just love Brad Bird's style. Like he's probably my favorite director for Mission Impossible personally. Yeah, that's the the hard thing. I know, and I know both of you are huge Wu fans, and I like John Wu a lot. Yeah, but I I think for Mission Impossible, and looking at it as a whole, what it's become, that Brad Bird is 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 a more important linchpin. Than J.J. Yeah. Abrams, who just came yes, in and agreed. did a reset. Yeah, I personally, I like J.J. Like Abrams. Everything. Yeah. More. Yeah. I personally, I like Abrams's work. And mm-hmm. I like what he did with it more. Just, but it does feel like an outlier. Brad Bird, yeah, feels like he did the most important things for it. And like, and by the way, I think that I don't think really gets enough recognition because yeah. it's one thing, it's one thing to come in as a director. It's another to be like, Hey, take three directors worth of stuff and make that work. Right. I can't even imagine wrapping my head around that challenge right there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the music. The music is always a big part of these movies. The original Mission Impossible music by Danny Elfman. Mission Impossible 2, a, uh, a little more electronic score by Hans Zimmer. And, and by the way, well, I, I want to point out, you're missing yeah. Limp Bizkit. <laughs> yes, thank you. That's one of the music. It's, I don't know why. It must be. Yeah, you must have forgot. A little bit. Yeah, I forgot. Zimmer, <laughs> if we're going to do slash Bizkit. Well, let's just have a separate category that's original song. And yeah. then that MI2 wins that automatically. So no, MI2 exactly. is going to get one win. There you go. MI2 is going to get Limp Biscuit, by far the best original song of the five movies, six movies. Far and far, far and away. Far and away. Oh, and the uh, Limpest Biscuit. 
of all of them. <laughs> yeah. There's so uh, many biscuits too firm in the other ones. This one is super limp. Well, look, I know we've determined the winner of this category, but I would like to give a shout out to what Michael Giacchino did in um, yeah. introducing a full-on orchestral, like, that's and that's all that it is. There's no real electronica big sections like his his score is a full on orchestra playing music specific to every city that they go to in these movies. Giacchino's uh, my I mean yeah it's bias here for me because Giacchino is maybe my favorite living uh, composer, but also I think in my opinion like the best action composer, mm-hmm. and I think it comes yeah. from both from video games doing Medal of Honor, but like working with Pixar. He composes action scores. I mean, I love Zimmer. Like, I listened to The Rock and Crimson Tide soundtrack, like, my entire life. But Giacchino scores action scenes almost like a Looney Tunes. Like, every single beat. Exactly. It doesn't feel like he just writes a theme and it kind of plays over. Like, he directs, he writes everything like a cartoon. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a natural progression from seeing his work in, uh, Incredibles and Ratatouille to suddenly in Mission Impossible three and four. I just, I mean, I love Giacchino. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's, and the combination of him and Brad Bird, which was, which they had worked together for Pixar, like, like it's, that's a fun sort of, um, you know, Spielberg and Williams kind of thing. Yeah, so I go for his the first movie. I don't think I remember the score of the other ones. Like, no. not that they're bad. It's just a very subtle. I, I, right. Elf, Elfman is like, especially now going back to the first one, distinctive on. Yep. Yeah. One, <laughs> Which is almost goofy. Like, I almost was laughing and stuff. I'm like, wait, I don't remember it being like this goofy. And it's not that it's goofy. It's more in line with the original television series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, can I? While you mentioned the original television series, uh, there's one thing that I love about these movies, uh, with the exception of Mission Impossible <laughs> Two, because uh, it was the only one that didn't do this. Is they put like half second clips from the movie as the opening title sequence? Yes, yeah, like, as if it is a television show that has already had it, like the old Mission Impossible show, which I think is. I was like, are these just clips for like, is this, it feel, it makes it feel like an episodic television show, which I think is really cool. I mean, Mission Impossible 2 was too busy wowing you with, uh, Tom Cruise climbing, uh, that, I mean, free, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, free soloing. Free so, soloing. Just as a quick note, like, yeah, and then the other two, uh, obviously, uh, you have Joe Kramer and Lauren Balfe. Balfe? Yeah. Balfe, <laughs> Balfe is an interesting one just because, He's from kind of the Hans Zimmer school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for those, you know, for, we, we have some friends who are like, you know, film composers and, you, you know, USC where Matt and I met has a big like film composing program. It is interesting because from the Zimmer school, a lot of times secretly, when you see a score by Hans Zimmer, there's a good chance that he's gotten help from people who eventually then become the like, uh, uh, Harry Gregson Williamses of the world and those sort of cause he's got like a big studio. He's a big old studio. Everyone kind of chips in. You can, there's a, there's a tone, there's a sound, there's a brand around Zimmer. So mm-hmm. in a way, Balfi kind of represents sort of that Zimmer esque mm-hmm. kind of sound that comes, kind of comes into it and, you know, and also comes in with a bit of video game experience as well. So yeah, you know, yeah. I, I just think that, and then I think, and I believe Kramer was just McQuarrie bringing him from yeah. Reacher specifically because, mm-hmm. and then also Way of the Gun. But I think to me, those ones are, they're, they're taking their cue off of GH, what the, the template that Giacchino set. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do we want, 
Do you want Zucchino <laughs> in, in Mission Impossible 3 or Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol? I feel like if we give it to three, that will be the only thing three wins. <laughs> and I, I, I doubt it. Uh, that not true. Not true at all. No? Uh-oh. Not true? No. Oh, probably villain. Absolutely. We'll get uh, to villains. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. Not the high point of the series, anyways. Oh, not the yeah. big great villains. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Let's, we can give it to Ghost Protocol then. Yeah, Do we I think like Ghost Protocol? Is that what we like? I think so. Bird okay, and, so. It's Bird and, it's Bird and Giacchino together. Yeah. Come on, that's, that's, that's peanut butter and jelly, baby. Right? Yeah. All right. So, locations? Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, that's just like, this, so it, this show goes all over the world. It's a globe-trotting show. It's a globe-trotting yeah. show. Sure. Here are the cities that they visited in each one. In the original, it was, uh, Prague and London, mostly with a little bit of Washington, D.C. John Woo's version, most of the movie is set in Sydney and the Outback with a great sequence in Seville. J.J. Abrams' movie is, uh, Rome, specifically the Vatican. Berlin, but you never really see it as Berlin. It's just kind of like a nondescript place. And then a climax is in Shanghai. In Ghost Protocol, they go everywhere. Budapest, yeah. Moscow, Dubai, Mumbai, San Francisco, and then finally the denouement in Seattle. That always cracks me up in that movie. Yeah. Because I'm from Seattle originally. And I'm like, what the, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> guys, like, it's not the same level. No. Yes, the Budapest of the Northwest. Uh-huh. <laughs> We have a like Dubai has the tallest building in the world. Seattle has yeah. something from the forties from the World's yeah. Fair that's like broke. Yeah. Like there's a restaurant there that spins around once an hour. That's it. Yeah. That essentially points to the problem with the movie. Yeah. It builds and builds in Dubai and then it just can't ever yeah. quite hit that again. Well, I like that it, it makes sense though, because at the end of the movie, think about where they've been. They've been scaling the world's largest building. Yeah. A Moscow prison. The Kremlin. A nuke headed for San Francisco. Yeah. The Kremlin. So after all of that, and we you finally the beat the guy, it's like, <laughs> you know what, man? I just want to go somewhere where it's quiet, where I get some coffee and some guys throwing fish. <laughs> and true. I just want to chill there. To be fair, the problem I have is like the end action scene is we, one thing they just went small scale, like, okay, now we're in San Francisco, but then they go into this like sci-fi parking lot. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're like, okay, so this is clearly supposed to feel huge. Yeah. This is a little bit goofy. Again, love the movie. But little- yeah. <laughs> is this um, and then finally, Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, and then in Rogue Nation, they start in Minsk, go to Vienna for that great opera scene. Much of yeah. the movie is in Paris and then it ends in uh, Casablanca. Uh, sorry, just and, really quick. One, sorry, just one. I just needed to double check this. Mm-hmm. I want to just point out one last thing about Seattle, which is I know Seattle. <laughs> Again, like yes. I said, I grew up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Seattle is really close to Vancouver, which is a much cheaper city to shoot in. Which means <laughs> when they were in Seattle, and I've double checked this, that's not Seattle even. That's Granville Island in Vancouver. Oh where it's my god! So of they course, didn't even do real Seattle. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> they ran out of money. They. They're yeah. showing you the real San Francisco. <laughs> they are like, they, at least you see a landmark. Then you don't even get anything for Seattle. Anyway, that's, that's like everything that's wrong with ending in Seattle summed up in a single state. Sorry. They did pay a Sean Kemp impersonator to walk around in the background of a lot of yeah, the shots yeah. to go. He passed, <laughs> he passed to a deadlift shrimp lookalike. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that Sedale three. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was just drilling threes in the background. That's right. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, and then we also have in that movie after uh, Casablanca, they also visited Oxford and London. And then finally in uh, Fallout, Berlin, Paris and the Siachen Glacier in Kashmir were the locations in that final one. I mean, I feel like a broken record, but like, how can you beat the Kremlin and Dubai? Yeah, like that. You you break into the. Yes, I agree. But I think in five, it felt sexier. I don't know. It just if four felt like set pieces, whereas five felt like a spy thriller. And that I can't even tell you. I, I guess I can't. I can barely remember the. I guess like the, the, it feels like they go to cool places, but like it doesn't feel like the locations were like the stars. And also, I feel like the locations in four. Like, the Kremlin as a location is like, okay, you're going to break into the Kremlin. You don't have to explain it. Whereas, like, when they go to Paris, you have to, like, set up, like, what are they doing in Paris, right? And, right. like, when you go to Dubai, it's like, honestly, we're going to go to the tallest building in the world. So he's going to climb it. Yeah, like, but it to me, like that's, like, that's, a, that's like a circus. That's like being like, oh, this movie went to the Eiffel Tower, and then it went to the <laughs> Big Ben, and then they went and look at the, the Statue of Liberty. It's like, c- come on, Matt. Well, what's the location in five? That. What happens in five? more cultured than that. <laughs> the, the Opera House. Yeah, the, the, Vienna, the Vienna Opera House yeah, scene the is beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. but it's not a recognizable place on postcards, though. I don't think it's a good place, Matt. <laughs> Come on. I gotta say, the Kremlin is a hell of a location, and they use yeah. it so well. Yeah, as he, seen he, in the background of Tetris. The location, the, he makes yeah, he makes more use out of a hallway in the Kremlin. There's so yes. much good stuff in the Kremlin. Whenever you go back to do it, yeah. besides the hallway, it's also the masks and then pretending to be Russian, and Simon Pegg can't do an accent, and there's just so much good stuff. Just Russia, just, so just Russia comedy. That's what sold you, huh? Yeah, it's really darn good. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. You suddenly put an opera, you put an opera music over something else, and it's 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 got to be instantly better. This is more cultured. Yeah, it was so much cooler because to me, there's there's a certain there's a certain like here, here's what it is. There's a certain like obviousness, and, and I'm not saying that Mission Impossible is doing this compared to other movies, but mm-hmm. it's a certain level of just like. I get it. You're in Dubai. You're going to just do, you're doing the biggest building, of course, because you're in Dubai, right? Right. Whereas it's much, to me, it's so much harder to get like the feeling of Eastern Europe, right? The feeling of France. Which they do for Budapest at the beginning of that, I think, beautifully. Yeah. Budapest in five a lot more. I was about to say, it's like, I, I, are you saying you've never seen a spy movie that takes place in like a theater or an opera house before? It's like <laughs> the most common location <laughs> in the world. Just because if you want to do a spy movie, you just like every single one's like the snipers on the Eiffel Tower and you got to do these obvious landmarks. To me, it's like, I don't know. It just feels a little gauche. What can I say? You know, <laughs> when you go to the actual location or... of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. yeah. Every time you go to an opera or a live theater show, the audience is 80% spies. Yeah. They're not all yeah. interactive. Like 20 different missions going on. Yeah, do not get a seat in a box. <laughs> and the show backstage, way more entertaining yeah. than what's on stage a lot of the time. Because they're all trying to kill each other back there, too. Frankly, I just wish more movies. No, I, I, no, Frank, I do wish there's more landmarks. I want the next one to be at the Eiffel Tower. That's what I pay for. I want the Great Wall of China. Yeah. I want the Eiffel Tower. I want like famous locations. That's what I want. I'm with want, you, man. Give me yeah, famous I locations. I want yeah, you famous locations. trying to hold up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And people <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you see a quick shot of it going on someone's Instagram and it gets a bunch of likes and then like oh we're gonna have to disavow Freddy's like the, the best disaster movies I love it when a tidal wave like wipes out my basement and like takes out no. a movie theater I don't want to see no, I don't want to no, see no, New no, York get taken out don't you get going with me on this disaster movies are different because the spectacle of a disaster movie is about blowing up well known locations whereas the spectacle of a spy movie is not to visit a bunch of tourist spots man yes, <laughs> he breaks into the Kremlin and climbs the tallest building in the world really, those two sentences are the most exciting sentences in the entire series so and then he gets the some fish and chips on, <laughs> and in the middle of 
of Vancouver in Seattle. Yeah. E4 doesn't get it because of the it could not stick the landing. Like, and okay, it's like, Father's Day. It's Father's Day. It's Father's Day, and I go to my dad's like, "Hey, you want to watch Mr. Possible?" He goes, "Which one?" I got. I got two options for you. I got one where he breaks in the Kremlin and climbs the World Salt Building, and one where he goes see opera. Well, what is he gonna watch? Just like in gymnastics <laughs> in the Olympics, Matt. If you don't stick the landing, the whole thing doesn't count, and you lose points. That's yeah. great. all right, gentlemen. Okay, if I may. To your corners. Um, Referee. To your, to your corners. <laughs> Holy cow. I'm glad you gave us that warning at the beginning. <laughs> Mark, don't you feel better about the time we got angry deciding best pretzel shape? And we, cho- we wound up with, we wound up with pretzel rods out of spite. Is yeah. that what the debate was about? That you went, it was a pretzel it was the, Yeah. 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 And he wanted to eliminate the Philly soft pretzel. And I'm from Philadelphia. Oh, that wasn't happening. That's so cruel. It's very, so, so Hal eliminated yeah. pretzel shape I eliminated from best pretzel, pretzel shape. shape. It's dumb. The rod is great. The rod is great. You bite that, you bite it in half this way and it becomes a little spoon for your Hal, own. Hal, I think you're, just, you're describing what happens when betas fight. Uh, we just witnessed what happens when alphas fight. Look at my belly. Let me show it to you. Look at this belly. It's full of pretzel rods. So I'm going to say it's ghost protocol. Budapest, Moscow, Dubai. By Mumbai, yeah, climb the world's tallest building and blow up the Kremlin. Stop by Vancouver. I, yeah, and, and show up in Granville Island, a weird <laughs> part of Vancouver with two breweries and nothing else. I will cast my vote for five, and nothing will change my mind. What's the, what does the Supreme Court do? You're, you're going to write the the, the dissent. Yeah, you're going to write the dissenting yeah. opinion oh after God. all this. Are you going to wear your dissent collar? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to um, my wig. I'm going to get on this. All right. Uh, let's move on to best team. You've got the original team, which is uh, the, the OG team at the beginning of the movie that De Palma yeah. kills off in the first half Hour, which is brilliant, leading to the whole story. Uh, you've also got Claire Phelps and Luther on the team. Uh, Krieger as well, but he turns out to be a villain, so I put him in that column. Second movie, you got Naya, uh, Luther so again. Oh, yeah, Claire turns out to be a villain too, I guess. Yep. I guess, uh. Him and Luther. Pretty much yeah. everybody becomes villain. It's pretty much just him and Luther. Yeah, everybody's a villain in that as one. As soon as Kristen Scott Thomas and Emilio Estevez get killed, you're like, what am I even it's, doing here? Yeah, it's, it's insane. And then part three, you've got Jen and Declan along with Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the crazy, Oz, sorry, I skipped over. You've got the crazy Aussie in part two, the crazy Aussie pilot. Yeah. Billy, Billy, ba- William Bad, call me Billy. <laughs> uh, William, no, it's William Bad. Billy's fine. <laughs> and then in Ghost Protocol, you've got Jane and Benji and Brant, the introduction of Brant. Then in Rogue Nation, Ilsa appears for the first time. Alec Baldwin's CIA uh, agent Hunley and Benji is back. And then in Fallout, you've got Ilsa again, Luther, Benji, and the newest addition to the team. <laughs> Superman. Superman. Henry Cavill. Are you reading those kind of points out to me. And again, it's not, it's not even a flaw of the series, but honestly, I don't know who any of those people are until you say the actors name <laughs> oh, just that's like, fair. like the character names i'm just like oh yeah the yeah. mission impossible characters you know all right Maya. and no no but i understand them now it's just yeah. i think it points to like how the movies feel like tom cruise and his famous friends doing stuff <laughs> <laughs> more than like necessarily like human characters yeah, yeah i would say luther is the only one of, of the of the teams that has the most name recognition just because yeah. mm-hmm. of just sheer repetition this is an interesting list because in each you could make i can make argument right like Right away, what stands out to me is like one is the introduction of Luther, four the introduction of Benji, and then five the introduction of Ilsa, who then become yeah. Yeah. these beloved sort of right like yeah. I mean Rebecca Ferguson is like 
the star to me. Like she's incredible in five. And honestly, I'm not the biggest fan of her in six. Like I, I don't like what they do with her as much in six. So like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's tough. Like the team in five is really fun because there's a lot of the same team in four, but like her like the addition of her is just like something the team needed i think i agree and i think that she i think that she is the one that is going to carry this category for rogue nation mm-hmm. i want to give a little bit of i, I want to give some love to paula Patton uh, as jane i did not like paula Patton's I jane she was great who is this <laughs> I, well, she's she the was one in four who mm-hmm. who joined who, the team who oh yeah no she lover had been killed yeah, she's yeah. pretty good. I, I like her. I for some for some reason it's just that scene specifically. Mm-hmm. That scene where Agent um, Josh Holloway gets killed, and she has her moment in that. Now she does some, you know, she does some ass whooping in it. Mm-hmm. But that scene in particular, I was like, ah, oh, she just feels. I hate to say it, not ready for prime time. <laughs> That's weird because she's uh, that character. At least is one of the few females who is an IMF agent. That is on a team. Ilsa's MI6. Mm-hmm. And she's her own thing. But Ilsa, when she shows up, you're like, okay, Ilsa is definitely the match to Ethan Hunt. Yeah, that's, I guess that's what it is. I just, maybe I'm just so used to seeing everybody chew so much scenery in it and then a realistic portrayal appears on screen and I do not recognize I don't, I don't think you can overstate how incredible an acting performance it is from Rebecca Ferguson to be on screen with Tom Cruise and you take your eye away from and Tom like Cruise and she commands the screen. his movie. Yes. Like, into his series. Like Tom Cruise is, whatever you say about it, like he is the movie star every time he's on screen. Like, oh yeah, this guy's like one of the greatest oh, movie stars of all time. The, the fact that in five, the very beginning, he just does like a smile to the bookstore clerk mm-hmm. and you're like I, literally that single smile I'm like that man's a movie star that guy yeah. that little smile there has more charisma in that frame yeah. than like entire movies Tom Cruise is made of charisma and he's yeah. excellent in all of these movies yeah but yeah she's she's amazing I love I mean I just love honestly that's probably one of the high points of the movies as it goes mm-hmm. on I mean I love Dubai to me is like the most fun team sequence because I love Simon mm-hmm. Pegg in that sequence and, and everything. But, like, yeah, I mean, I like Isla, Isla. I don't even know her name. Rebecca Ferguson Ilsa. so much. Yeah. Ilsa, so much that my vote's probably five. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, and I think that um, Benji gets kind of reduced to he, – he starts off, like, super fun. But I think as time goes on, he mm-hmm. just he kind of becomes the default – comic relief let's just throw it to mm-hmm. him kind of thing so he's kind of like mm-hmm. oh he's the tech guy who's and like i think simon Pegg is great in that role but i also am like how many times at this point in like in movies have we seen like the tech guy who's complaining right. about you messing with his gadgets like, which i thought was great i thought it was great that they put him on the team that he's a field agent yeah yeah, yeah. when he becomes a field agent in four because he's yeah. introduced in three but he's basically q they were setting yeah, up the queue exactly. and then and four he's a blast the whole dynamic with him and, and tom cruise is just that scene in the kremlin with the two of them is like comic genius mm-hmm. and uh and alec baldwin coming in in five two is great like yeah he's good in that role he's i think he's really fun and he just whispers everything that he says as always <laughs> which is yeah. just alec baldwin actively whispering right because in three they're pulling in uh morpheus right lawrence mm-hmm. for a similar yes. kind of thing and it's like yeah i think there's just something about the overall framing of three that just felt like these guest stars felt like tv guest stars whereas 
there's a weight, I think, in terms of the direction in the later movies with supporting actors in these on the team roles that I think just has a different flavor to it. Also, when Lawrence Fishburne shows up, I want him to whoop ass. Like, I want him to kick butt. Like, Alec Baldwin shows up, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're a bureaucrat. You're good at your job. Like, I don't, I'm not expecting, I don't want you to kick ass. You weren't in the Matrix. Lawrence Fishburne comes in, I'm like, you gotta put him in this movie. He's gotta kick some butt. That's also what happened to him in John Wick. I'm like, come on, give him a gun. <laughs> that's awesome. the bird and pick up a gun already. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. true. That's true. It'd be like it would be like Bruce Lee showing up in like yeah. a, an acting role. You'd be like, he kicks someone, right? At some point. Yeah. Like, oh, why yeah. is what are they doing then? Why did they yeah. pay him money to be in this? And he's not going to punch someone. He just plays the accountant. He just shows he up he's helping with finances. That's it. He's like kind of just checking everyone's four hundred one k's. Really? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Morpheus. You should. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, all right. So what are we saying for the team? Do you, do we think that the team of Benji, once he gets on the team and Brant and Jane is better? Do they beat Ilsa coming in in five and just dominating? Which Brant is also in. He's also Which Brant is also in five. Yeah. It's gotta be five. I think it's yeah, gotta like be five. five too. I think so too. I even love the, that bookend of I can neither confirm nor deny anything without the secretary's yeah. approval. That mm-hmm. movie, they bookend that at the beginning and end is really, really nice. I'll just give a shout out to, I think, Fallout. I like that the end of Fallout's end action scene is all about the team working together. Yes. Which yeah. is a really high point of that, of that movie. But yes, I think the team, but again, I like, I like Ilsa way more in five than I think. Yeah. Uh, and even his wife, uh, helping in, uh, yeah. Fallout. Which yeah. Is, joining joining which the team. Is, which is what, right, right? That's the thing that they introduce in three, which is, I've always like, it's such a, it's a, it's like the one thing that makes the Mission Impossible series stand out to me. Cause it's like Bond is right. This rogue brooding bachelor forever. Right? Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the Fast and Furious guys, they have each other. They're everyone's on their, their, their own family. And that's like, and Tom Cruise and then like Ethan Hunt, married man. You're like, it's weird. Did not expect. <laughs> like it's just, it's just always like, it's just weird. I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a flavor that is unique to Mission Impossible that you My weird, know. my weird thing would be it, it helps it be a more PG 13 version of Bond. It lets it, the series is desexualized because it's yeah. like, he's a married man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's not, this isn't Bond. He's not going to have yeah, sex Bond, on the mission. Bond is going to have like, Dirty, like yeah. mean sex with. Like, Meanwhile, John Woo's just gonna be a little bit naughty and put some boobs in your face in a bathtub. <laughs> yes, a very unsexy scene. Yeah, but a you, very awkward. Scene. We're just actually just talking about this, where it's like it's weird because the sexiest scene in that movie is the cars. The cars yeah. make the cars love on the cliffside. Like, yeah, like, and that's uh, by the yeah. way sexier than most actual movie sex scenes. So it's like, yeah. he did. He managed to do something with. Cars. We're restraining ourselves so much to not just make this an entire podcast about analyzing John Woo because as we were watching <laughs> it, we were just doing Discord, and I was like, I realized that John Woo's villains are all sexualized from like Hard Target, where he's got a single revol- reloading rifle that he acts. It's very clearly a metaphor for his dick and face off. Mm-hmm. Literally, once he becomes a villain, he becomes sexualized and he has sex with his wife again. In. And then in this movie, it's the same thing. It's like the two, the villain in Mission Impossible 2 is like the mirror to John Woo, to uh, Ethan Hunt, not as well as Face Off as the same thing. And again, mm-hmm. he, he talks about having sex with Fanny Newton's character the whole time. And Ethan Hunt's just this like celibate monk. <laughs> of a yeah. It's like a very Catholic thing that John Woo does anyways. Well, you, uh, you threw it beautifully <laughs> to our next category, which is, uh, the villains. And this is, I, I think this one's pretty easy, but I will read them yeah. all. Yeah. Mission Impossible, the original, you've got Phelps. Phelps is played by John Voight, turns out to be bad. Krieger, um, 
uh, what's his name? Come on, movie guys. Uh, uh Renault. Renault. Jean Renault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Claire, uh, Phelps' wife, uh, they turn, and, uh, Max as well, Vanessa Redgraves. Not really, she's not really the bad guy. She's just, you know, a, the money person behind, yeah. the, behind the bad guys. Uh, but she is wonderful, just scenery chewing. And then you've got, uh, in Mission Impossible 2, you've got the sort of anti-Ethan Hunt in Ambrose. And then in Mission Impossible 3, you have the sadistic Davian, as played mm-hmm. by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Also, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Musgrave, the government bureaucrat who turns out to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in uh, Ghost Protocol, you've got Cobalt and the assassin, the blonde assassin, uh, Moreau. And then in the last two movies, Rogue Nation and Fallout, you've got Lane is the villain and his group, The Syndicate, which is oh, a great villain name. Just yeah, the Syndicate. Well, the yeah. Syndicate. Oh, Lane. Like, yeah. And then Lane. The Syndicate hey, very Lane. much feels like, hey, we got a, hey, we're all a bunch of bad guys. Who wants to do the logo? All right. We're logo. What do you think? The Syndicate, the crew. Yeah. You know, it's like, come on, guys. The, the syndicate really couldn't come up with yeah. anything else. Like, it's like, this is me and Matt on Xbox trying to come up with a clan name. <laughs> yeah. Call of Duty. Like, the first thing we come up with, oh, syndicate. Ooh, cool. syndicate. All the villains in the first one, uh, they they don't really count because you just know them as bad guys. Or you know them as good guys through most of the movie and then they flip. Right? Yeah. Mark. What? Mark. Do we need but, to march through all these movies when, when <laughs> Davian is so clearly yeah. better than every single than every other like, thing? This is one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's about. best roles. Yeah, he is memorable. Right. He's again, I don't remember what he does as a villain, but like, yeah, I don't even know what his thing is. His performance is so good. It's just money. Like, He's an arms dealer. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it's the weakest point of the series, which like it's also to the point of the series that doesn't really matter like what the plots mm-hmm. are half the time. It's kind of like they're doing spy shit. <laughs> like it's yeah. fine, whatever yeah. it is, but. He makes, I will say Ambrose is not a good villain, but I, maybe this gets into the MacGuffin. I do think the actual villain idea for MI2 mm-hmm. is one of the only ones I can actually remember after watching the movie because yeah. it makes sense. It actually works pretty well. But that's, he himself is like not great. One thing that Ambrose did, and this goes into uh, t- a little bit into the tech as well, but Ambrose introduced that the villains can have the masks as well. Yeah. yeah. And also yeah. the voice changer. That was one cool thing that Wu did in Mission Impossible ah. 2 mm-hmm. was the added a voice changer so that if you're in the mask, you can talk, but there's no, no, there's like, no question. No, you're, about, you're, you're about to change my mind, Max. I'm like, you know what though? Ambrose freaking throws down. None of the other, all the other villains are like hiding and you know like, yeah, like yeah, Wilson yeah. Robinson sits changing, on a plane and complains and talks. To Ambrose? Ambrose, yeah. Ambrose gets on a motorcycle and charges a hundred miles per hour in Ethan. So I will say that the, what Ambrose does have is he actually fights. Yeah, that's like, true. So, well, so Philip Seymour Hoffman, Davian fights at the end. I mean, he has to, he has to implant like a, a chip in his brain first. Look, yeah. man, I don't think there's any question. No, there's though. no question. But I, I had to, I had to like yeah. try. If that Ambrose scene, is the only one who threw himself on the motorcycle and they clashed in the midair because yeah. of the motorcycles, and no one else yes. can say that. Lane that's true. That. That's true. Lane was in the, the the straitjacket and he almost drowned. That's the best you can do, huh, Lane? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, um, Lane gets caught in a Lane gets caught in a hotel room, and whoever was the guy in four gets like falls off a built falls off yeah. a parking structure. Yeah, he Ambrose, jumps off a parking structure. Yes, yes. <laughs> Though, uh, don't forget about Fallout. Superman, burnt face Superman can fight. That's true. Henry that's true. Cavill at the a- end of every Fallout. Time, the whole time. Every time I saw Doug Ray Scott. Uh, who plays who plays Ambrose in Mission Impossible mm-hmm. 2. I was like, yeah, you could have been Wolverine. This is what yeah. you chose instead <laughs> of being Wolverine. <laughs> was it play really? a guy who dies at the end of his movie, 
Oof. Mm, terrible Versus idea. A, but like, it was like nobody talked it. Like his agent was like, look, I don't know what comic books are. I've never even picked oh. up one of them. I know you buy them in drugstores. You should do the Mission Impossible movie. I but like, I do know 60s television. Yeah. There's no way he kept his agent after that. There's just no way. There's no way on earth. Can I say to the people of the world, listen or watch that clip, if you can find it, of... Davian when he is on the plane or not is it before the plane or on the plane I think it's on the plane the famous scene where he's talking oh yeah where he says you know what's gonna happen yeah like the thing that he knows it's fascinating to me to watch a villain who knows that he's dealing with people who have guns and he has an army and a fighter jet drone (laughs) like he's like guys you know what's he's like I this is there's no question in his mind and his yeah his calculated delivery of that monologue is it's one of the best villain monologues I've ever seen in a movie in its pure, like David Mamet Atlantic theater simplicity. <laughs> yeah. He's and Bob- also the, the Joker in the dark night when he's being intimidated, when Batman's yeah. trying to intimidate him, he's like, you have no power over me. Yeah. I know you won't kill me. And there's, yeah. there's something to him being dangled over the cargo hold and him mm-hmm. cutting the straps where he, Looks like he doesn't want to fall out of a plane, but also doesn't seem convinced that it's going to happen. Which yeah. is he is he just that no dead stare. He just yeah. dead stares. He's just at like him. tell me who your family is. <laughs> yeah. And bomb bomb in the head is a pretty visceral good good thing for a villain to do. Yeah, that's a no brainer there. Yeah. Uh, Davian wins. All right, let's talk about bombs in the head. Let's move should on we, to should tech. We take a break. Yeah, let's we take a break. Get to te- We've been I going. This is epic. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from some of the other podcasts on the Maximum Fun Network, including maybe Story Break that you should be checking out. We'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm James, host of Minority Corner, which is a podcast that's all about intersectionality. It's hosted by James with a guest host every week. Discussing all sorts of wonderful issues, nerdy and political. Pop culture. Black, queer, feminism. Race, sexuality. News. You're going to learn your history, their self-empowerment, and it's told by what feels like your best friend. Why should someone listen to Minority Corner? Why not? Oh my God, free stuff. There's not free stuff. The listeners of Minority Corner will enjoy some Necessary LOLs, but mainly a look at what's happening in our world through a colorful lens. People will get the perspective of marginalized communities. I feel heard. I feel seen. Like you said, you need to understand how to be more proactive in your community, and this is a great way to get started. Join us every Friday on Max Fun or wherever you get your podcast. Minority, Minority Corner. Corner. Because, because together, together we're the majority. You wept as we crafted the tragic tale of Jar Jar, a Star Wars story. Yeah. Dude, like he forgives Darth Vader. <laughs> he says, still love you, Annie. <laughs> you gasped out loud at the shocking twists of Face Off 2. Face is wild. He takes his kid's face. What? <laughs> We're writing an entire screenplay week by week on Story Bricks Season 2, Heaven Heist. Hey folks, Freddie Wong here with some exciting news about Story Break, the writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have one hour to spin cinematic gold. We're shaking up our format by turning Heaven Heist, one of our favorite ideas we've ever come up with on the show, into a full screenplay. Heaven Heist is an action comedy about a crew of misfit gangsters robbing the celestial bank of heaven. Think of Coco meets Point Break. Join us as we write this crazy movie scene by scene and get an inside look at the screenwriting process on our podcast Story Break every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. And we're back. All right, we have four more categories. The first one I want to talk about, this is uh, one of the big fun things in the Mission Impossible movies, and that's all the crazy tech that they introduce us to. 
So I'll try to go through this quickly. In the first Mission Impossible, they introduce ultra somehow realistic masks on people, (laughs) exploding gum, red light, green light that you pinch together, and of course, their version of the internet. (laughs) Huge in 96. Yeah, yeah. Huge in 96. It was just coming out. It's all he's searching use groups uh, or Usenet groups. Yeah. 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 And, uh, oh, and Bible and, use that groups, no less. And an email address had a colon <laughs> after the at symbol. And I was like, guys, that's not how. <laughs> that- and also everything's code name is like code name secret project. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I, that time period, 90s movie depictions of technology is my it's great. favorite. It's, it's so, so fun. Like everything from Sandra Bullock's The Net to yep. you know, everything. It's just like, guys, wow, AOL really did a number on you. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. He's like, I'm going to find find out what this problem is if i have any of the thousand hours left on this aol cd yeah. i'm gonna hack into the mainframe um all right uh then mission impossible 2 as we mentioned before introduces that villains have the masks too and now there's a voice changer uh mission impossible 3 introduces the exploding brain. it also well mission impossible 2 also introduced the idea of um automobiles with only two wheels they're called motorcycles. Oh, yes, that's true. And I know they, 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 exist, they existed beforehand, but they weren't ever really used correctly until Tom Cruise yeah. got on them in that's Mission true. Impossible 2. That's true. Good point. Good point. Part three introduced the exploding brain chip, which becomes a major plot point. And then Ghost Protocol introduces the invisibility screen, which is super cool. And the, the new 3D mask printer. Also, it's like his magnet climbing to get on the yeah. side of the building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, magnet uh, the ma- the magnet gloves that uh, blue means glue, red yeah. means dead. Such a good scene. And then Rogue Nation introduced the uh, the Kremlin gate sensors. Uh, is just one little bit of it, and uh, the gloves that uh, tell you how much oxygen you have in your body. Let's be frank; these you know how much oxygen you have when you hold your breath. Yeah, That's yeah the exactly. The audience. How much oxygen you have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doesn't your iPhone do that now? That's not that impressive. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, Mission Impossible Fallout has the ability to recreate the entirety of CNN, including. <laughs> Wolf Blitzer's face and a portable face scanner. Am I missing any of the big ones? I feel like the big ones in this are which movie used the masks the best? Oh, uh, well, I mean, and the exploding brain chip is pretty cool, but MI2, the invisibility screen is great. Oh, the invis- I mean, MI2, if we're going to say masks, MI2 definitely has the best mask because it's the only one that has the double mask where it's the bad guy's mask. It's, it's Ethan Hunt's mask over the bad guy's mask for that final moment at the end there when he tricks no, the bad guy. Yeah, is the just, best it's mask just, reveal. It's Ethan Hunt using the mask on someone else, which is just yes. random uh, flunky. Yes. 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 To it's this the, day, one of the best buildups where you're like, oh my, it is. I, I do think that sequence is in the same way three starts with that bang where you're like, whoa, like, I can't believe they're actually doing this. Mm-hmm. Two has that moment you're like, whoa, is he, did he not lose that fight? Oh, is, did he just shot. Like, I remember when I first saw that being like, just like, oh no, Tom Cruise is dead. And then when Liv Biscuit comes and he's running around the <laughs> corner the slow-mo track up and rips off the mask and still Ethan Hunt, that was one of the formula movie experiences well, me at a young age. Also, the movie starts with Ethan Hunt killing a guy and then you realize somebody else is using Ethan Hunt's face. There's also a yeah. very good reveal of the mask. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cool tech. The invisibility screen. Bef- I do want to talk about that. I mean, that's one of the uh, great. That's maybe the greatest sequence. That's <laughs> like the, where it's so good. The idea that if you want to Wiley e. Coyote a hallway, you can actually do it 
as long as the camera knows where the viewer's eyes are on the other side of the screen and adjust the projection accordingly. So that is one of the, well, so totally cool. One of the weirdest things that one of the weirdest filmmaking challenges maybe ever, which was that doesn't work in real life. If mm-hmm. it's, if, if you have binaural vision, right? Because mm-hmm. you can see, like you would see it as a flat screen. So when they right. made this movie for 3d, they were right. like, okay, how do we show what should be flat? If because we're in 3D now, this should have no depth, but we have to also tell the story that this should look like. So what did they ultimately do? I believe, if I remember correctly, seeing it in 3D, they just treat it as if it's a 3D hall. Yeah. Okay. But it's one of those weird ones where you're like, wait, technically, shouldn't this be not that? And anyway, it's just one of those right. weird. Someone, some VFX supervisor sitting there was just like, what are we supposed to do here? It's yeah, also his mind got blown. It's just the directing of that sequence is so incredible because. I can't, if like, I feel like if there was like a wired, like YouTube video trying to explain that technology to somebody, they wouldn't understand it. And the film just so elegantly introduces this idea of face tracking camera mm-hmm. that like can change the image so that when the guy walks, it still looks invisible. Like it does this so flawlessly that the whole, like you, you don't have to, they don't even have like an exposition scene to explain it. They just so effortlessly, effortlessly ex- like just visually show how this thing. Yeah. And so very uh, it's a, it's a Rube Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, it's beautifully done. Uh, yeah. I do want to add one that I forgot in Ghost Protocol at the beginning in Budapest. That's where they introduce the Terminator eye, where you have oh, yeah, a, yeah. a scleral lens that can scan faces and get information. Uh, previously, it was just that it was just a thing in your eye that would, that meant you had the brain chip and it would explode you. Yep. Brain chip's definitely out there, though. It doesn't seem like something new. Like, they put a bomb in your head. Yeah. Pretty it's the same thing in 4. Yeah. Like, I, in 4, I can just... You can instantly say, the, like, three gadgets, and you can remember the scenes exactly how they play out. You're like... The, yeah. visual- it's the integration of it. It's the integration. I, yeah. yeah. Let's give I it agree. up for the exploding gum, though, because that, like, rocked my mind as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yep. For the longest time, anytime I saw gum that had, like, two colors on it, I was like, no way. Like, <laughs> this could be the one... Like it's a, it's a good gadget. That's a good. It's just a very simple visual. All, frankly, it's an all timer gadget because it's like it's just the right blend of like this sort of Cold War. Probably could be feels like it could be real. Yeah, type yeah. Of stuff. Whereas the masks, like by the as the movies go are on, bonkers. Like you're just like this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, even by the time they reuse it in the later movies, it's almost mm-hmm. like I remember the audience I was in was like kind of chuckled at it because of just how ridiculous it was. But you're yeah. into- well, they made it a joke for Benji too that he yeah. just wants a mask. He spends three movies wanting to put on a mask. Yeah. Yeah. So it becomes this sort of thing, and then as as time goes on, it just gets crazier and crazier. But like exploding gum is still the one that's just like the realistic Cold War esque yeah. gadget that mm-hmm. feels like it could be a thing and it feels like was inspired by a real thing yeah yeah it's a good gadget yeah shout out to that it's pretty incredible and that it's got a catchphrase that goes with it yeah that's true yeah red light green light yeah but i think the winner here is yeah ghost protocol with the invisibility screen the magnetic gloves the contact lens everything all right so let's move on now to the MacGuffin, the thing they're all chasing this seems like another pretty easy one uh the first movie you have the knock list the list of all the agents the second movie you have bellerophon the antidote or the antiviral uh to the virus chimera uh, the third movie, you have The Rabbit's Foot, which I don't even remember what it is. No. Something that they just yeah. called The Rabbit's Foot that doesn't matter. But I love in Fallout that some, that the, or, um, I'm sorry, in, uh, 
in Rogue Nation that Ilsa picks up a key on a rabbit's foot keychain, which oh. I thought was cool. In uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, launch codes, classic. The, uh, nuclear launch codes, a classic, yeah. Uh, Rogue Nation, some syndicate info on a USB, who cares, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then Mission Impossible Fallout, it's three nuclear balls full of plutonium. But it's just these three big silver balls. Like, they literally, by the sixth movie, were just like, yeah, just give three silver balls that everybody's chasing. Like, these really don't matter. I think with the exception, as you said before, of Bellerophon. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put my foot on Bellerophon. It's not only that, it's that the, the MacGuffin becomes her character. Like, it's, yeah. it's not like it is in order to save her, they have to get it. So it's not just like a random object. Like, once she injects herself, it becomes like she becomes like, like she, you're invested on a character level in the story as opposed yeah. to like the launch codes or whatever it is. So I'm a, I'm a fan of, you know, that the, the, um, Mission Impossible 2 is written by the guy who wrote Chinatown. Yeah, I Robert Town. No, so yeah, Robert Town. Was, idea that he also wrote uh, Mission Impossible Two. Yep, was one the greatest screenplay of all time. Also wrote Mission Impossible Two. It's one of those things where it's like when you when you when you watch it, you can kind of tell just there's just not a con- there's just not quite a connect between that script and John Woo, but yeah. But I guess, what I think is that's what's kind of brilliant about it. Yeah, well, we've already all agreed it's the best one. We're talking about the second best here. Sure. <laughs> I mean, so to, yeah, because because also, by the way, Bellerophon allows you to have you know the most intense, like I will find you again, right? Like just mm-hmm. straight out of um, Last of the Mobile yeah. style, yeah. Yeah. diving out. Like Ethan has never been that passionate in any other movie except for that moment when he's like trying to get out of this building and he's shooting with his two guns and he's got to jump out and jump out. like that's so that's like so that's so like good peak cinema it's so good well on the final not just peak not just peak mission impossible peak, peak cinema, cinema. Peak cinema. Yeah. oh wow. i will oh absolutely peak cinema because it's like they are able to have this intense conversation where while like the stunt guys in the background are having this like this gunfight he can't get both of them out the look on tom Cruise's face once she's like can't get both of us out he's like i can't you know it's like it just it feels so intense the emotion of that moment is just so over the top the simplicity of because basically the mcguffin category is kind of the plot category yeah it's that they they, at one point in the movie they even say it's just that simple and he goes yeah it's just that simple and yeah. also, by the way, this, he, I know at the time we were all these cynical, like, huh, oh, isn't it funny that the, the, the villain in Mission Impossible 2 is he wants stock options? Uh, take a look around the world and you tell me <laughs> who the villains yeah. are. And you yeah. tell me that that idea of some corporate guy manipulating <laughs> stuff and getting to get money in corporate, you tell me that's not, that's outlandish then. Like, yeah, yeah. that's because we were naive. Yeah. In nineteen, in back in the day, hey man, the guy wrote Chinatown. He's a smart dude. Yeah, dude, dude. Yeah. knock list to me is the is the close second though. The knock list, is, yeah, it's a cool. Yeah. That's again a cool Cold War esque thing. We're like, oh, what does that even mean? And it turns out that is a real you know acronym that the CIA uses, and of course that leads to the maybe you know the top you know, most maybe one of the top memorable sequences of the whole thing, which is just you know right. him in the server room and the and the and all yeah. that. Which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's clearly Bellerophon for that category. Yes. By the, yes. yeah. By the way, the villain in that film, uh, in Mission Impossible 2 is basically Martin Shkreli. That's, they, yeah. he yep. saged <laughs> that that yeah. guy would exist. He wants to be let out of prison so he can work on a cure for COVID-19. <laughs> like yeah. that's what he's going to do with this yeah. time. Yeah. Uh-huh. While listening to his, uh, one Wu-Tang. copy of that Wu-Tang album. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on now. One hallmark of these movies, of uh, most of these movies, five out of six of these movies is uh, some sort of item that they need to 
get out of a secure vault in a location that requires a scene with planning. So everybody sits at a table. They plan out a heist of some sort of deep vault. Yeah. And they are as follows. In the first Mission Impossible, it's the famous on the cable scene at the CIA headquarters where they have to get a file out of that computer. The second movie, it's the Biosite headquarters where they one up going through an air vent from, you know, one floor up down into the room to doing that exact stunt again, but this time from a helicopter (laughs) into a 50-story atrium shaft. The third movie, Mission Impossible 3, they have to get into the Hengshan Lu building. That is when he, again, writes on the window and decides that they need a fulcrum to get them into the the Hengshan Lu building to get the the rabbit's foot or some part of the rabbit's foot. I don't know. Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, of course, has the famous Burj Khalifa, tallest tower in the world in Dubai. Uh, They've got to get to the server in that so that Benji can access it. uh, And they have a big planning scene for that. Then, of course, the underwater version in Rogue Nation with the Casablanca power plant. Uh, And then in Mission Impossible Fallout, doesn't have exactly a vault dive like that, but it does have a planning session, and the big extraction in that one is Lane, the villain himself. Yeah. In that one. So that one kind of is not going to win this category. This, to me, feels like that original one. Yeah. I mean, that's one. I mean, you can't really say it's like all of Dubai is that. I mean, that first scene in the first movie is one of the most famous movie scenes of all time, regardless of of Mission Impossible. It's just like an all-timer sequence. Yeah. And it's Brian De Palma executes it perfectly. The silence, the drop yeah. of sweat. I, I yeah. still yeah. remember seeing that scene in theaters. Uh, yeah, I still remember stunning. The audience, and I still remember the audience reaction. I remember gasps when he catches the sweat drop. Oh, I it's like, so good. And I remember just being like, really kind of almost like as a kid, you know, like looking around being like, no other movie has like done something. Like I've never seen, uh, at that point, I had never seen an audience so in the palm of a movie's hand like that. Yeah. Has, has, yeah. Had, had done, which is like, it really blew my mind as a kid, as a kid, as a, as a, you know, burgeoning mm-hmm. film fan. And, uh, what a great button on the end of that scene that they completely accomplish it. And then Jean Renault drops the knife and it lands yeah. point down into the desk. It's so good. It's what a, I mean, like they put the period on the end of that sentence from above with a knife falling <laughs> into the table. Like that is, yeah. Yeah. That one's got to be the winner. They definitely go bigger in later films, but they don't do it better. It's it's a perfectly done scene. Yeah. Speaking of perfectly done scenes, that takes us to our final category, and that is the big epic stunt action sequences. Which movie has the best of these? And those are, from the first Mission Impossible, you've got that cable drop we just talked about, and also the uh, helicopter versus train in the channel fight that ends the movie, which Mm -hmm. is wonderfully bonkers. <laughs> it feels like it's from the mid-90s. Yeah. Watch it out. Oh, yeah. The second movie you've got, as mentioned before, uh, the rock climbing opening sequence, the <laughs> chopper drop uh, atrium scene, the, the ridiculous version of the greatest scene. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the motorcycle fight followed by a brutal fist fight at the yeah. end of the movie. And a knife 
but they actually drop like a centimeter away from his eye, which is a pretty cool. Which yeah. is a very cool visual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And probably the most dangerous stunt that yep. they've ever done. Like, they actually I, did that. Because if just, you look at all of these and you're like, Did they really do that, that with the yeah, blade? They they you, in the behind the scenes, they just have a blade attached to like a big bar above him. And the, he's in the sand and the guy just drops down with a knife and it stops because of a rope. And Oof. John Woo was like, I hope... I hope he doesn't move. <laughs> God bless. Like when, you, wow. you know, when you look at even the, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll let you finish the rest yeah. of it. I think that is the most dangerous stunt. Probably. Out, out of all of these. And then in Mission Impossible 3, you've got that incredible uh, helicopters through a wind farm chase at the beginning. You've also got the bridge, Philip Seymour Hoffman, hey, I have a fighter jet scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And they that, that movie has one thing that has become a staple of these films is the villain after they make an escape midway through the movie waving from a helicopter <laughs> at Ethan as he stares in disbelief. Ghost Protocol, you of course have the bombing of the Kremlin that amazing climb up the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, and the somewhat anticlimactic <laughs> after that uh, Dubai climb uh, robot parking garage fight. Great choreography of that, though. Yes. Great choreography. And the yeah. way it was, it was filmed really well. Speaking of great choreography, you have the Vienna Opera fight. This is Rogue Nation now. The beautifully executed Vienna Opera fight. Yeah. A great motorcycle race. Uh, that underwater dive into the Casablanca power plant. And then finally in Fallout, you have the helicopter fight, the climactic helicopter fight at the end that almost looks like Star Wars. Uh, you have a really funny, cool uh, rooftop chase, which features, I think, the best version of Tom Cruise just flat out running which happens in every one of these movies. The halo jump, high altitude, low opening. And another brutal, without musical accompaniment, bathroom brawl, where they mangle a face. They (laughs) they have... They need to go in the bathroom to get this guy's face for the scan, and then they... The battle... The fight is so brutal. You forgot the... the face. You forgot the the biggest stunt from Five, probably, which is the opening. Oh, the... Yes. On the outside of the airplane. Thank you. The outside of the airplane airplane at the opening of Five. Yeah. One of the biggest stunts ever for him, right? Yeah. 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 So, so Big I will stunt. say this about mm-hmm. two. One. So first and, first and foremost, you don't have any of Tom Cruise getting his rocks off uh, as, a, <laughs> as a guy doing stunts without two, right? So two is the beginning of all of that. That's him yeah. rock climbing at the beginning and mm-hmm. a little bit of not quite, you know, really free soloing, but you know, there's definitely sequences where there's a net and he could get hurt. Um, right. A lot of these later on, you know, I, I, I love the Burj Khalifa sequence. As far as like danger to Tom Cruise, low on the list because they have him rigged right. up and they're painting out all the cables. Same is that? Do we need to? Do we need to look at it through that lens though will, of how this. difficult was it? I mean, I, I will say this. I will say this. But it's probably harder to. I mean, you're right that he's not going to be hurt. But in terms of like a stunt, right? A yeah, stunt yeah, isn't but, measured by how likely no, the no, person no, no, is but, to die. No, no. But I will say this. But I will say this. By the time we get into four and onward, it starts to feel more and more like. Tom Cruise is trying to prove something to himself or trying yeah. to settle something and the movies get dragged along and I love the ride to get dragged along on it but it definitely sure. also feels like Tom you just wanted to do a halo jump huh yeah because he really did that that was a real jump yeah well I think what's weird about um so and shout out to the guy holding the IMAX camera who also did yes. the jump but with a camera in his hand Really? To me, there's an interesting thing in six, which again, there's a lot of incredible sequences in, in six, but I definitely found that like, if they didn't tell me ahead of time, 
about how incredible the stunts were, I don't think they would have. For example, the Halo jump, because they do like the lightning storm, mm-hmm. and just because you've seen so many from like Kingsman and other sort of sequences. You assume it's like, going to be fake? Yeah, it's just like when you watch it, it doesn't, it didn't feel that impressive to me, especially once they do the lightning storm thing. Cause I'm like, oh, it's CG. And even like the helicopter fight, they didn't tell me ahead of time. Like the moment where he falls onto the package is amazing, but the rest of it, I'm just like, okay, like these are, yeah, they, this they, is they Star really, Wars. They really went out of their way to be like, hey, Tom Cruise had to learn how to fly, fly a helicopter. He's flying a helicopter in this one. And it's, and it's one of those ones where it's tough because I think the assumption that a lot of people have when you go into it is movies have this sort of meta narrative that they need to deal with now, which is mm-hmm. the assumption of, Oh, this is all fake. And so they yeah. have to fight it in this weird way that in a way, these time capsule movies of like one and two, you're like, no, there's no way they're, f-. you look at that movie, you're like, just the aesthetic of it, you're like, there's no way they're faking him mm-hmm. doing this stuff. Like that's, that's him for real, for sure. It's, it has a different level of, of feel, I think. Freddie, do you know how they did the helmetless motorcycle in five? So I believe the helmetless motorcycle was a mix of head replacement and, there are sequences where I think it is just him. They, he he learned the line, like they're doing mm-hmm. a racing line, and Tom Cruise is a world class race car driver slash mm-hmm. motorcycle uh, uh, operator. Uh, the the story goes they were doing some movie and like the, I think it was like the Ferrari Days of Thunder, Days of Thunder, and it was like an F one team was doing practice laps, and he's like, oh, let me get on the F one car, and they're like, yeah, sure, Tom Cruise, go ahead, get in the F one car, one of the hardest vehicles to drive in the world because. The way those cars work is you have to be going fast in the corners for the downforce to give you grip. And mm-hmm. most human beings will chicken out. There's a great Top Gear episode where Richard Hammond tries it, and he just cannot make it through a turn because it's so scary. And this is a guy who drives the car for a living. Tom Cruise clocked a lap in that F1 car so fast that they were like, if you quit and just train to be an F1 driver, you could be a world-class F1 driver today. Like he is wow. that like tuned into motor sports and all that stuff. So he just learned the line and he just did it. Look, I, I'm going to be honest. I, a lot of this is news to me. Like I did not know that he flew his own helicopter mm-hmm. at the end. I just assumed like you, like you said, yeah. I, my assumption is artifice when I yeah. see anything on screen now, which is why to me, I mean, honestly, it's still the most, and this is also probably because I'm afraid of heights. Like, Four, when he goes, that shot of him coming out of the, the, the bridge cleave or whatever is still like the most, uh, one of the most astonishing shots I've ever seen, like in a film. Like when he just, cause yes, he's, he's tied up at that moment. He, the camera pivots around him as he goes off the edge and you're just with him over that overhang. I was just like jaw on the floor, that entire sequence. Yeah. Still my favorite stuff, which is like, I probably like five. The, the airplane sequence in five is probably close, my close second, because also he's just like on the plane. Like, it doesn't matter that he's strapped in. I'm just like, yeah, he's on the outside of a plane. This is crazy to watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you like, you go to a movie theater and you're like, Tom Cruise is going to do some crazy stuff. And you sit <laughs> yeah. down and you're like, all right, and you get your popcorn and the movie starts. And within three minutes, you're like, oh, Tom Cruise is doing some crazy stuff. Yeah. There is a bunch of really, I mean, like, right, that kind of comes to this, it speaks to this old, sort of Keaton-esque look mm-hmm. at cinema, right? The idea mm-hmm. of cinema spectacle. And, yeah. you know, I think that, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts, obviously, on the visual effects side of things, having come from a visual effects background and how, you know, I think there's, it's all to some extent a magic trick, you know, and, and, and nowadays people are much savvier to magic tricks and the sort of ways that these things are done. There is a sort of old school respect that you can, that you get, an old school thrill you get from watching these movies where you're like, oh, he's, he's just really doing it. And yeah, it's tough. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, this one's tough for me because I think that there's a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of points into me for 
just from the Burj Khalifa sequence alone. And I think, but also at the same time, I think, uh, but at the same time, five has some of the more, to me, some of the more artfully done sequences. Uh, I don't know. Well, I think that the Vienna Opera fight is the Vienna Opera fight to me, I think is the, of all the fight scenes in the series, I think is the prettiest, most fun, most complex, interesting. And I love the location fight scene. Yeah, if you said best action, I think five is my favorite action because mm-hmm. both the well, the, look, I like I the, said the before, fight and the motorcycle race, those two action sequences. I wrote like, stunts impeccable. on this category, but I what I meant was I was kind of combining stunts and action sequences. This is action, mm. so think of this category as action. Then I, I I would give it to five in that case, like for yeah. like because Dubai is my favorite sequence, but like that's as much like thrill and spy stuff, like. Mm-hmm. Five, the motorcycle chase and the Vienna Opera House fight are probably my favorite action sequences, you know, along with like the bathroom brawl. And well, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, again, the last, literally the last 50 minutes of MI2 is nothing but John Woo masterclass action. Yeah. But, you know, again, we'll, yeah. we'll just accept that it's not really Mission Impossible. It feels different. So we'll go. We're going, we're, look, we're picking the second best movie. Yeah. <laughs> we're picking the second best movie. <laughs> so, so does that mean we're going, are we all okay with? With Rogue Nation, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, there you can yeah. get good yeah. stuff out of each of them, but yeah, they all have great moments. I think I think that makes sense as as a winner. I have a I have a bonus. So that's all of our categories. And mm-hmm. before I tally it up, I do have like a little bonus category. Just okay. going from memory, I don't. We don't have to go through a list for this. Mm-hmm. The, the, a hallmark of of Mission Impossible is him receiving his mission instructions. Yes, oh, and yes. it's done differently. In every film, sometimes yeah. multiple times. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite? I, I, in my mind, immediately have an absolute favorite. I, the best moment for me is the old, is the old payphone that doesn't blow up right away. That is, it's such a but, fun bit. Wait, compared to, uh, compared rock climbing to and a rocket band? goes to his foot and he's got ray bands and then Limp Biscuit starts playing after his ray bands blows up. <laughs> I don't want <laughs> Limp Biscuit playing. <laughs> Where it would, if, right? If I it would be a vacation, as he throws his sunglasses yes. with built-in headphones, I didn't even realize that you could have sunglasses with built-in headphones at the screen. I was not even expecting at the screen towards me as it explodes into the title sequence of a bomb. I'm going, oh, this is too by a long shot. There's no way you can do three. He sits there with a digital, like a portable camera, and just blows away into dust. Like, that idea. Yeah. That's it. Are you yeah. kidding me? The idea. The idea? That he was wearing this on his head. <laughs> the idea that in order to give him a mission, they blatantly fly a helicopter that everybody can see, shoot a missile at him. Right. And then the whole point is the discretion. And then yeah. open it up to reveal sunglasses <laughs> that he <laughs> then wears. It's so good. It's like 10 layers of like, what is going on? It is. It is. <laughs> That might have to win. I will say I love no in, I, I love in five. Four is really uh, good. The payphone. Yes. Uh, I love in five. Four is the payphone and four is great. I love with the introduction of the syndicate uh, that uh, Ethan is getting his message. And that's when they flip it on him and they say, and we know this because we are the syndicate. Oh, in, in Rogue Nation, yeah. In Rogue Nation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's, that's the record store. I like that one. In the, in the record yeah. store, yeah. The record store is a cool moment. 
See, because all of this stuff, though, the problem is at a certain point, it's just it's making a riff on the thing that's already established. You have to establish right. it first. And the idea, again, of throwing sunglasses. That, I, look, I, you sold me. Uh, that is the fact that it takes a, a helicopter, like, a rocket. The dude who works with the IMF, you're you're in your suit and tie. Right? And they're like, hey, we need we figured out where Ethan is. He's in the outback. You need to deliver a mission to him. It's like, cool, cool. Got a piece of paper change. or a letter? No, 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 no. Don't, don't get, don't change. The helicopter is spinning up right now. Just grab the rocket launcher we used to deliver the Ray Ban with the message in them and just shoot it at his feet. Figure out where he is and shoot it at his feet. And the guy's like, all right. Hi, honey. How was your day at work? Well, out back, I guess I got flown in. Ridiculous. Oh, so good. It's so good. Yeah, that one's pretty amazing. <laughs> that that can win the bonus category. That would conclude the scorekeeping round. I have already tallied these. And uh, it is, yeah, it's pretty clear who the winner is. It is not even close. The only the only movie before the bonus category that got more than one category win was Rogue Nation, and and Mission Impossible Two. You'll be happy to hear eked out thanks to the bonus category <laughs> two wins <gasps> with yes four total category wins so coming in second yeah coming <laughs> second is mi2 it's weird it's weird oh yeah no, go, ahead, go ahead. uh people of the world you asked us a long time ago to pick the best mission impossible movie and it took our our new best friends freddie and matt <laughs> Oh, thank you. To help us actually tackle this. But we use science. You cannot dispute science, people. <laughs> and the scores tell us that the best movie is 2011's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, directed by Brad Bird, with music by Michael Giacchino, with an invisibility screen, a 3D printer, which is, I mean, <laughs> blow my you mind. Incredible tech. <laughs> and and the, introdu- the introduction of Jeremy Renner, who conveniently disappears for the sixth movie. Will he be back? Probably not. <laughs> but there you go. Asked and answered. The uh, it is Ghost Protocol. The I think you're giving me the evidence, movie. but it's kind of like telling somebody who believes Elvis is still alive that Elvis is dead. I'm like, I know in my head it's in my, my four, but I in my heart, it. in my heart, it's two. In your heart, <laughs> it's two. two. Because in no other one does he wear a leather coat so well. In no other one does he <laughs> running and pulling off a face mask so well. In no other one does he have two guns, one in each hand, <laughs> diving through as birds fly away from him on a motorcycle. Like, this, this is not even a question. The heart says two. The mind, I, I admit, says four. But what yeah. is what is the purpose of science if it gives us only wrong answers? <laughs> <laughs> if only we had added a category for most dubs. That's what we were really no, missing. I, I'm very happy with MI4. What a wonderful film. The whole series, man. Yeah, it's really like worth watching them all over the course of a few days. Like it really, it holds up. They all hold up. They have none of them have gotten worse since they no. first came out, which is a credit to all of them. I, I love the the intro, like cell, like looking at a cell phone where they're like on an iPhone four. I think I think even as recently as Rogue Nation, protocol. <laughs> yeah, and then like what a web page looks like in Mission Impossible <laughs> one and two. Like they're the Jules Verne's of the internet. <laughs> it became quaint yeah. instead of outdated. That's yeah. how that's it feels to me. It feels that's quaint. a tough one, to, and that's a tough one to pull off. Yeah, Our movies don't survive that. But fellas, thanks for doing this with oh, us. Oh yeah, thank uh, you, Freddie Wong and Matt Arnold. Uh, tell us about your podcast. What do you want to pitch? Yeah, so we got two podcasts: one on the Maximum Fun Network, and the one you should definitely check out. I mean, check out the other, all of them if you want. Yes. But 
Number one, story break. So this is a podcast where Matt, myself, and our writer friend, Will Campos, who we've worked with for years, we come up with a movie pitch off of a ridiculous idea. And we have an hour to do it. Past episodes include the Jar Jar Binks in the entire Jar Jar Binks, like Star Wars solo movie. But instead of solo, <laughs> it's Jar Jar Binks. I think we get a tearjerker out of that one. Yep, that's a good movie. Flow from Progressive movie. We do a movie about why the chicken crossed the road. Like just that joke <laughs> as a full indie film. What were some of your favorites, Matt? Uh, you named my favorites, uh, especially, yeah, I wasn't expecting you to throw it to me. You do all the pitches. So yeah, those ones, the ones that Freddie said, do those. So yeah, great. So, so check it out. That one's a, that one's a very fun one. We just did Mambo number five to kick off our third season <laughs> here, which is fun, like rom-com. Uh, and by the way, don't worry. You don't need to see Mambo's one through four to get Mambo's <laughs> five. Ah. And we also do another podcast. It's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast called Dungeons and Daddies. It's not a BDSM podcast. I want to make that clear right at the very front in case you were confused. It's a uh, Dungeons and Dragons podcast where we play with uh, our friend Anthony Birch, writer of Borderlands 2 and the video games, uh, and our friend Beth May, Matt Will, and myself. Uh, it's about four dads from our world who get thrown into the world of fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons, like in a quest to rescue their lost sons the idea is that it's like regular suburban dads in the lord of the rings sort of fantasy world and how do you how oh, do they cope that. with that it's very fun we get to channel our inner dad matt being oh, i love dad, that real dad. <laughs> that's a lot of fun too dungeons and daddies and story break very cool well Just thank you for out. being here this topic is closed thank you again to kristen kelly for another amazing topic she's a big part of this team this topic is closed but there are many more to discuss so please reach out to us on twitter check out the maximum fun subreddit or you can email us at we got this podcast at gmail.com or go to the facebook group talk about your favorite mission impossible moments i bet you there's a gif about it that is facebook.com <laughs> forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast. Thank you to producer Ken Plume, researcher Kate McManus, graphic designer Uri Kelman, and QA engineer Jen Alba. And thanks, of course, to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks to you, the people of the world, for giving us a chance not only to sit down and talk about these movies, but for giving us an excuse to sit down and watch the most expensive six-episode series ever made. <laughs> This was a lot of fun, fellas. This was really fun. So thanks for uh, thank you for having us. It was a blast. It was a blast. Please come to the people of the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Agliardi. For Mark Agliardi, I'm Hal Lublin, and don't worry, everybody, we we got got this. this. We got this. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.